we just want to say cheers to the sort of abstract concept of hanging out with your friends online, however you choose to do that. Um, we've had a couple of movie nights uh, over the past months that um, are really just the tenuous thread that is holding my sanity <laughs> together. Um, you know, hanging out and talking with my friends about, you know, terrible, terrible movies uh, is the most normal feeling we get nowadays. And uh, I just want to say I appreciate it. And I hope you all have something like that for yourselves. So cheers. Cheers. Hey, everybody, I'm Caleb. I'm Spencer. And this is the Mix Six, where we have six conversations, drink six beers, rate them on a five-point scale, and just drink by ourselves, whether a microphone's on or not. That's that's what uh, that's what drinking's about. All we used to be all about like simulating the bar experience and a good conversation to have in a bar. Don't go to a bar, even if you can. That's a trap. Yeah. Don't go. Just stay here and listen to us in like a self-contained room uh with its own air supply and uh a stockpile of dry goods and water the Uh, city of springfield would tell you that you can go to a bar and then the day after they tell you that you can go to a bar they would also tell you that a covid positive patient went to three bars yesterday so if you were (laughs) in any of those bars be careful yeah so Uh, don't go to we had we have a guy who did three oh man that beats south korea shut it down for the whole country after a guy went to five also who's going to a pub crawl like Right, right. I, that just feels decadent now. Like, yeah. if it, I, I would love to go to a bar. Like, just the idea <laughs> of... I mean, I think... Right? about... I don't want to go to, like, seven bars for 20 minutes. That that's I, I, get, I get the, like, uh, I've not been to a bar in two months. Now I'm going to go to every bar in two days. I mean, I kind mm-hmm. of get the appeal of the splurge there. Uh, but don't do that. Uh, <laughs> and because people are doing that, you should not do that. Uh, and that's kind of how that works there. It's just simple math. I mean, there were there were protesters who went to a gym outside of Clearwater, Florida, and started doing push-ups and squats outside while standing shoulder to shoulder and waving the American flag. So, you know, people are having a normal one uh, in response to this. Look, you know, parasocial relationships <laughs> get a lot of bad rap. Just listen to people and pretend they're your friends. Uh, or join our Discord and we could be internet friends mannequins uh cardboard cutouts uh (laughs) just arrange a little tea parties so that's Mm -hmm. the way we do it now in 2020 Mm -hmm. uh and and hopefully you can uh get some good beer to have with your totally Mm -hmm. real Mm -hmm. adult friends um in the pre-party what are we going to talk about ross uh two things one uh my book zombies of the world is being reprinted by andrews mcneil uh a fairly very large publisher so it's getting proper distribution now so you can get it uh it's got a new cover uh it's hardcover now and uh, i'm very proud with it uh and uh if you want to learn read about different zombie species and try and figure out all the different references i put in and uh some really great art uh is in the book uh but it's it's a fun little read it's only 1999 uh, and uh, you should all uh, check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. And um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's zombies. It's a field guide to zombie species. It's biology facts, but for zombies, uh, which are would be totally real. Uh, I mean, we would take zombies over this, I think. Uh, yes. Oh, hands down. <laughs> uh, as one Honestly, of the points, I'm more prepared. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, and the book points out zombies are a source of perpetual energy. We could solve our energy crisis with zombies. We just put them on uh, uh, stationary bicycles and uh, we can generate power from them. It's, it's that. It, yeah, it's it's a very uh, ecologically friendly if you think about it. Uh, another important document the White House did not read before all this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see what the White House missed. Um, in other news, uh, Night Clerk Radio released our newest uh, episode recently the on plunder phonics it's our first topic episode uh where instead of reviewing albums we talk about this concept is important to the type of music we're reviewing it's important to vaporwave uh, plunder phonics is this idea about using sampling uh other sounds as its own instrument sampling other music as its own instrument um i act like girl talk dj shadow uh and many many others have uh used this uh especially in vaporwave uh and it's uh so Brooke and i just really get into it and the legality it's very not legal uh most of the time uh but who cares art is uh you know do do crime make art basically i guess Mm -hmm. anyways uh listen to night clerk radio yeah uh what what else are we going to talk about today in our podcast spencer so as you know uh if you well i suppose if you if you've not listened before you don't know that we typically drink six different beers we rate them on a five point scale and that five point scale changes all of the time and if you have listened to us before you know what is about to happen we're going to tell you the way we're going to review really bad beers and really good beers today on our five point rating system based on what we are calling the leland box um russ you want to tell us what this is before i get into the rating scale um, it's a plastic black and yellow tackle box, uh, you know, about, uh, 18 inches long. It, you know, the standard tackle box kind of size. And basically he was cleaning out his garage recently and said, do you want this tackle box? And, uh, I looked inside, there were things in it and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take that. Uh, but bef- you know, because you, you're, before I decided to tell you all about it, I realized, well, what do they think is in it? Uh, because, given what they know about Leland, I mean, it could really be anything. And so uh, instead of just spilling the beans immediately, I just, uh, I just uh, uh, mentioned this and Spencer, you are all over the idea of doing this. Oh, hundred percent. So for those of you that don't know, Leland is of course, Ross's father, uh, notoriously given Ross some of the most interesting gifts. And that's a kind word in the history of the world. <laughs> and so Ross sent a picture to the group and said, we could do a rating system based on what's in the box. And I've never been more excited for anything. So today's rating system is a one to five system based on things that could be in the tool like box Leland has given Ross. So one. Before we start, can we just appreciate the sort of Schrodinger's Leland's box that we have right now where potentially everything is in the box? I will confirm there are things in it. This is not an Al Capone vault situation. So I I just, uh, I just like to think that, you know, it, it could be anything in there. All right. I just appreciated that ambiguity. Uh, go on, Spencer. Your reverence is warranted. Um, <laughs> okay. So one, in this case, the worst kind of beer or the most disappointing thing that would be in a toolbox Ross got from Leland is tools. Oh, that would like suck. If you, just, if you just opened that up, especially after the game we've played now, and it was actually just used for tools, I'd be mad at you. I'd be mad at Leland. I'd be mad at me for playing along. So that would be the worst thing to find in a Peyton toolbox. Utter dog shit. It Utter didn't come from Leland. Shit. No, absolutely not. I, I'd call it a lie on face. Um, <laughs> a two. So a slightly better beer, but still super disappointing. Not something you want to drink again. And in this case, something that would be disappointing to find in the Leland box is something sentimental. 
So like some memento or gift that Leland has been holding back, pictures of Ross as a child, and it's bad for a couple of reasons. One, would totally destroy my perspective of Leland. That somewhere he's been storing sentimental, meaningful things, not just errata, for the last 40 years of his life. Two, like, can you imagine that if he was storing sentimental things, they just went into a toolbox, which was somehow in his garage that he was cleaning out? I mean, the whole thing would be fucked up. So two is something Also, an audience of one, Leland should really understand by now that he's performing for a, a greater scene. Like, right. a, a bigger a bigger scene here. Like, right. oh, you pleased is, your son, whatever. Low stakes. You have an yeah. audience, Leland. Yeah. Right. Yeah, this was community theater, and then you gave us Haywire. Okay, this is Broadway, <laughs> sir. Um, okay, a three. Uh, so this is like, this is kind of what I initially expected to be in the Leland box, just as this is a kind of beer that you expect it to be. It's not particularly great, but you're like, oh, yeah, 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 that's definitely that thing. So a three or something that would be the totally expected average in the Leland box is something curiously still alive. <laughs> like something that shouldn't have lived through this process and may have been in that box for weeks, months, decades. But but sure enough, when Ross opens it, there's like a fucking lizard or some honestly extinct species of which the last remaining was living in Leland's garage. And, and I wrote a Delta Green scenario expected. about that, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. Okay, so now we're getting into the good stuff. Fours, fours and fives, beers you want to drink again, or things that would be really exciting in the Leland box. So whereas the worst thing you could find in the toolbox would be tools, one of the most interesting things you could find in the toolbox would be a picture of some famous person's tools. And that is so on brand for Leland. Oh, man, that would be that'd be chef's kiss in terms of meta. Yeah. Ross, I'm tagging you in here. What mm-hmm. honest to God picture did Leland give you last week, the week before? Um, it was a photo of a rattlesnake taken by Drew Brees. Uh, and he, he sent it to me, not because I ca- knew that I cared about football or anything, or Drew Brees in particular, because Maddie actually picked uh, him as for her fantasy football league. Um, it just, it was a photo of a rattlesnake. He said, hey, look, they have rattlesnakes in Louisiana, I guess. By, by sent it to you, how did he send it? Oh, to yeah, you? he printed out, out the Instagram page. There, there it is. There it is. An Instagram printout, as if it was, imagine. yeah. Like John Cena was like, hey, I got these nuts and bolts. And then Lillian was like, you know what? This picture of these nuts and bolts would go really well in this toolbox made to hold nuts and bolts. That would be interesting. If if inside was a bespoke collection of famous people's tools. I wish it played John Cena's theme as you opened it. Yeah. Just as you, you can't see me. Um, <laughs> okay. And then number five, the best and most interesting way. To, re- to resolve and to not resolve this story is that when you open the box, there's just a key inside. <laughs> no description, no explanation, no instructions, just a key. And that begins the mix six RPG we've all been waiting for. That's it. That's it. Spoiler, the key actually belongs to Barry Goldwater's Thunderbird. And 10 years from now, you will have every piece of Barry Goldwater's Thunderbird. Jesus. Oh, yeah. God. It's like an escape room. I yeah, it's like a don't want to think novel. what you could possibly be escaping from, but no. <laughs> brutal, brutal. Uh, so that's the rating system we'll use today, Ross. We have to know now. Okay, what was in the fucking box? What's in the box? All right. Um, 
uh, glow sticks that expired in 2005. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that's pretty right. good. Okay, oh, so let's see. Have here. you tried using one? Uh, no, I have not. Check that expiry. These are Ozark Trail brand uh, glow sticks uh, for uh, outdoor equipment. It's a two pack. So uh, I think these were uh, essentially he bought them as props for Motorhome from Hell, or was it used in the production of that somehow? Um, and see, it's got a little gray string. And hey, look, it still kind of works almost. I call I call bullshit. Let's yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So questionably working glow sticks. Not on the All list. Right. Honestly. Shocking. Uh, fantastic. Uh, it's a like an electric battery powered glow stick, uh, kind of thing. I think these are these are all lighting uh, things. Is there a lot of raving going on in, uh, in Motorhome from Hell? Just Admittedly, all, I've not seen yeah. the film. It's all glow sticks. Yeah, it's, it's all, glow, all glow sticks all the way down. Oh, party glow necklace. Uh, what the fuck, man? <laughs> Is there also ecstasy in there? Like, what the hell? For a Is second, like, a glow stick? stick included amongst other tools, like, that sounds suspiciously practical. But an entire box of nothing but glow sticks is pretty Leland. I'm, like, not, I'm not sure what these are. These uh, have a screw on them. Uh, there has a hole. Probably uh, some sort of advanced glow stick that we right. get to <laughs> understand. Thematically, I feel like it's a lighting something. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably, yeah, there's a theme here. Um, so, yeah, battery-powered and uh, chemical glow sticks of various kinds. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's got a little string, too. Look. It's- well, I, I was initially disappointed when you held up the glow stick, and then you held up 37 more glow sticks. And yeah. I thought, oh, okay, yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Now I'm just imagining Leland raving his ass off while listening to Sandstorm. Like, totally. Totally. In the there's garage. an expired one from... 15 years ago that he did well if it's from leland it's it's expired yeah right right that's that's implied in the word sir (laughs) okay well anyways that's the rating system we're going to use for today beers uh and i had i known this i would have just made a rating system based on different kinds of glow sticks so whoops (laughs) uh on that note we're going to grab more beer and we'll be right back Spencer, I was following Dan Marino's Instagram. Uh, he took a picture of rec- his recycling bin. Uh, I printed that out and mailed it to you because uh, I thought you might like what you saw. Uh, so oh, what totally. beer did you buy as a result of it? Well, I also have a recycling bin, and as you know, and <laughs> obsessed with recycling bins. So this was the right move, and I appreciate that. Um, so this is out of France. It is one of the 7,237,000 beers that Brownie Davis sent us. Thank you again, Brownie, for the incredibly kind gift. This is the Extra from Brasserie 33 out of France, and it's the Extra Dry Hopped French Farmhouse Ale, uh, and it's got a real stench to it. I'm going to be honest with you. So <laughs> I am excited to, to put this in my body. It is a farmhouse, though. Like, sometimes the stench is a feature. Like get that wild uh, yeah. yeast smell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't seem to be the no. case in this uh, no. no. Uh, I should have yeah. just kept I sh- we should have just stuck with the Instagram printout of Dan Marino uh <laughs> recycling bin. I, um Um so like here's the weird thing. Um it actually underneath all of the bad, 
there is some genuinely good farmhouse. The problem is sitting on top of it is a slightly metallic Miller light. And so it's just a real, a real dive through the wilderness here, kids. Um, I like parts of this beer far less than I like the, the sum total of this beer. That's a two for me. I will put okay, that in okay. 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 Show cool. notes, Kayla. What are we talking about? Well, um, in dissecting our fun, uh, I, because I'm a wonderful friend and a great gift giver, uh, gave you and Brandy Azul Summer Pavilion. True. And following a rule of not owning doubles of gains as much as possible, uh, I have since had to pass it in the store dozens of times uh, using. Exercises of restraint that, frankly, my frail frame can't handle. And uh, mm-hmm, I, I mm-hmm. was heroic for not buying a copy myself because Bless you. Azul is one of the best games um, I've ever played, ever. Uh, it is so easy to set up. It is so easy to play. It is so engaging while you're playing it. Uh, the turns are so fast. God, it's just a beautiful, beautiful construction. Yep. Uh, we've tried expansions of that before with Stained Glass of Sintra. Uh, our group sort of had mixed feelings about that, um, but I was very eager to try Summer Pavilion, and then society shut down, and I just had to wait to hear about it from you. So you right. finally played my oh-so-generous gift. Um, tell me how it went. Not Correct. that I'm judging you or in any way uh, no. Get no. to respond upon your character. So yeah, there, n- not that we don't have an entire recording now of you passively judging me for the whole thing. That that would be too convenient here. Um, so um, Azul is nearly perfect. Caleb's right about that. And, and for me, one of the reasons that Azul is nearly perfect is because the complexity of Azul is not in the design or the mechanic; it's in the decision making. And the scoring is a little bit clunky, but other than that, the game is is just elegant. And Stained Glass of Centra was, as I've had some time to reflect on it and play it a few more times, just not very elegant. Um, It introduced decisions, I think, at the wrong point in the decision tree of Azul, while attempting to maintain the, like, really kind of beautiful tile placement elements of the original game. And, And so I would just have to say that I'm not a big fan of Stained Glass of Centra, and so therefore was, like, skeptical of Summer Pavilion because I've kind of landed on this idea that you don't need to iterate on Azul. Azul is perfect. Move on, try something else. And then we finally learned Summer Pavilion. And I would have to tell you, we've only played it twice now, and I want to get it back to the table, and I really want to get it to the table with four people, because Azul does change significantly from two to four at the base game, because the number of tiles that are available, the number of decisions that are available to you, because the number of players really change what you can and cannot do. And Summer Pavilion, I think, would have the same kind of adjustment window. And so I do want to see it at, you know, three, four players. But I would have to say this after playing it twice. Um, If there was going to be extra complexity mapped on top of Azul, I think Summer Pavilion has done it right. So here's the nature of Summer Pavilion. Um, Much like Azul, you are drafting tiles off of your little factory boards. And those tiles are being placed onto your larger personal player board. Um, Unlike Azul, though, those tiles uh, have colors and symbols, colors and patterns functionally, that can only go in specific places that are tied together. So you're taking tiles from the factory display in the middle, and then you're placing them onto your board, which has these kind of like individualized starburst looking areas where you're trying to place tiles of a relevant color, relevant pattern, etc. And those tiles have to go together. 
Um, there's also a wild starburst in the middle of your player board where you can place a tile of any color, but throughout the course of the game, you can only place one tile of that kind of color in your wild starburst. Here's, here's one of the interesting things. Whereas in base Azul, you match up type of tile to type of square, there, there's a similar process in Summer Pavilion, but each of the places where you can place tiles also have numbers associated with them. And unlike Azul, where you pull tiles out of the center and immediately place them on your board, in Summer Pavilion, you pull tiles out of the center and you put them in a pool of tiles. And once all tiles have been pulled, then do players in turn order begin to get to move the tiles from their pool to their board. And what's interesting Sounds like here, a wonderful recipe to screw yourself over. 100%. It, it actually has a little bit of like a, a, a roll and write quality. Yeah. Uh, why, that, why like, did I do this? <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. I can't do anything now. Yeah. Um, as you're placing tiles onto their color-associated, pattern-associated starboard areas, starburst areas, uh, there are numbers, one through six, for each of those different spaces where you can place those tiles. But here's the trick, and this is where they introduce a level of complexity and economy to Summer Pavilion that does not exist in Azul. In order for you to be able to place one of your tiles on the associated colored starburst on your board, you have to have that number of those types of tiles in your pool to be able to pay for your ability to place that tile on that space. So if, for example... Very, very much place, like Azul. Like, right. If you want to place in the fifth row, you need five tiles to place one in the fifth row. Yeah. That's exactly right. But now what you're doing is you're sacrificing those tiles on the front end <clears throat> to be able to pay to place them in that moment. So if you want to place on the blue five spot, you have to have five blue in your pool, or you can use wilds in your pool, and you've got to sack four of those using the fifth one to then place it on that spot in the moment. And so it creates an upfront economy mechanic, whereas an original Zool, the economy is on the back end. You stack and stack and stack and stack, and then once you place, you sack the remaining tiles. In Summer Pavilion, you have to collect them in advance to be able mm. to place. And so it just changes the direction of the game. Um, the game is six rounds. And every round, a new tile is a wild tile, which means that you can pull tiles of that color during that round and, and contribute them to your economy for any of the colors. But you can only place wild tiles on their associated starburst. And so it, it both gives you more economy, but also is more restrictive in where you can place those things on the back end. You can use them to pay for things. You can't use them to place additional spaces. And then at the end of the game, you score based on the number of starbursts you've completed and each colored starburst has a different point value at the end of the game and uh, based on some other mechanics that you've covered or some other tiles that you've covered or surrounded throughout the course of the game. One last cool element they've introduced here that does not exist in either Azul or Stained Glass of Centra. Stained Glass of Centra, I guess, maybe a little bit. Um, because the board is laid out in such a way that you are filling in these starbursts, these starbursts are organized around icons. As you fill in the four spaces around those icons or the two spaces around those icons, you get bonus actions and you get to take bonus tiles from the center of the table that only mm. you have access to and you get to kind of like add them to your pool. So there is a chaining mechanic in Summer Pavilion that does not exist in Azul and it means you're dedicating part of your time not just to scoring points <clears throat> but also to triggering and completing some of these other tile placements so that you can get more actions on the back end. So there's a little engine building mechanic here 
that forces some push and pull in what is available to you, how quickly you want to close some tile spaces and not others to be able to take tiles from the center so other players can't get access to them, or so you can turn your two tiles into three or four tiles. So uh, the same tile draw, tile placement mechanic as Classic Azul with this added notion of an upfront economy or payment system and the ability to chain placements together to create more actions is a really interesting level of, of depth and complexity added to the, the quality-based game of Azul. And the tiles feel just as tactile. They're actually bigger and a little bit heavier than standard Azul tiles, which only increases the feeling of quality in the game for me because that's one of the best parts of Azul in the first place. I have been super impressed with the two plays we've had. Cannot wait to get to the table four. And if you were on the fence because Stained Glass of Centra was not your thing, uh, this could not be a, a, a more distant correction to Azul and complexity. Um, it's it's pretty unbelievable. So so really happy to play it. Thanks so much for the purchase. Excited for you to give it a shot. Um, hard recommendation for Azul Summer Pavilion. The the I'm glad the clickety clackety uh, remains because that is the best part of Azul uh, for me tactically. I really want to play it, even though it sounds like they've made it a game. Like I'm pretty good at Azul. Um, it sounds like they've made it a game that I will be bad at by including things I like more in games, yes. like an action chain. Once I get fixated on a cool action chain, I know I will chase that well past the point where it's an optimal strategy. That's exactly right. <laughs> and that's exactly right. What I'm what like, yay, I came in last, but I did that cool thing I wanted to do in one turn. Right. Um, Literally what happened to me, Brandy ended up winning, even though she like was medium clear on the rules the whole time and didn't really think the action chain thing was all that interesting. I, of course, saw action chain and then only heard and saw action chain for the rest of the game. <laughs> yeah. And sure shit, did I get all those spaces closed off and did I chain all those actions together? And guess what didn't score a lot of points? Focusing on action chains. And so th there definitely is a balance here between scoring points and manipulating the board to get more turns. But if you're just, you know, and this is kind of like the core problem of me playing games, if you're just manipulating the board to get more turns to get more turns, you're still not scoring points. And that's where I netted out in Summer Pavilion. That's also why I'm excited to see you play a Summer Pavilion, because I think you're going to run into the same wall I did. The, well, the yeah, thing, I could go again. Yeah, the other thing in, like, Azul is that y you have competition in screwing each other with the draft, but it's usually only for, like, one or two rounds that you guys are fixated on the same tile type. Um, and that typically shifts. You always have someone you're kind of in some kind of a opposition with to get the tile. But um, it's rarely everyone at once. If there's a wild type, yes. that's going to do crazy things to the uh, fuck over mechanic that already exists in regular Exul, I think. And be because the individual starbursts are worth more points for having completed them at the end of the game. If you finish the red starburst, it may be worth 14 points. But if you finish the pink starburst, it's going to be worth 20 bonus points at the end of the game. Well, there are a fewer number of pink tiles in the bag. And oh, so wow. there's a static bonus hanging out in front of you the entire game. But because there are fewer tires, tiles and you're adding more people, it's just it's going to be an all-out war to figure out where you want to push-pull on going for shoot-the-moon big numbers or more actions in the short run to fill up the more of your board for smaller numbers over time. Yeah. Um, really, really, really great complexity, lots of depth. Um, excited to try it with more people. And, and that's Azul, Azul Summer Pavilion. Um, on that note, Caleb's going to grab a beer and we'll be right back. Caleb, what are 
you drinking? Uh, Sarah got these for her gluten-free self. And I, because I'm a responsible consumer, am just stealing them. So um, from Cider Boys, they put out a different cider, if you believe it or not. Uh, it's the Grand Mimosa Apple Orange Hard Cider. Oh, they name it after the uh, Aquaman star? <laughs> um, I could be down with an apple and an orange together. Yeah. It's very good. Um, as far as ciders go, this is probably a five for me. Um, really? It is sweet, but right under the level, the acidity of the orange puts it right under the level of being like cloying and too sweet, which is really your danger zone in ciders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um it's drinkable AF, even though it's 5%, which is a little high for your mass market cider. Um, I, I would drink these all day. These are great. Are you getting apple and orange? Because we've had a lot of apple ciders, but the problem is uh, it, there's like a hint of apple and then it all runs into sugar. And so are you getting some some flavor there? Yes, I'm getting both. And also, uh, and I know this is a different brand of there, so I could be just hallucinating it. Or maybe some interaction with the flavors. I get like a hint of cinnamon, almost. Um, but it is a. But I get no champagne, which I know is pivotal to a mimosa, and why I don't drink them because I fucking hate champagne. Wow. Uh, really do not care for champagne at all. Don't taste that. Just apple, orange, and then some fun alcohol on the end with a little cinnamon note. Like it quite a bit. That's a five for me. You are wrong about champagne, but we can yeah. move on. Sarah is now um, angrily texting me. Are you stealing my booze? Yes. Yes, yes. Do I need to text her? Do I need to text her and let her know that you are? I'm happy to do that. I mean, you. no, I, she's, she's listening in the, it's the calls coming from inside the house. Um, yeah. You got to watch out. She's Pain like CD. Dave Gettleman up in my air vents, <laughs> drafting NFL stars and spying on me. Uh, anyway, what are we talking about? Um, so speaking of drinking things, uh, we have not done a professional drinker in a hot minute and, Mm -hmm. uh, this was an interesting question. And so I thought, yeah, we should fucking give this a go. Um, Alex C asked, you've talked about what board games you'd use to introduce people to the hobby, but what needs would you use to introduce people to the world of beer? Would you use a basic like bud or use a really good, but exotic beer to draw them in? What beers would you recommend for beer beginners, which we will now call beer beginners? And I do not apologize for that. Um, And so this question was interesting to me because in my mind, my first reaction was, well, I would have them drink insert favorite beer. And I thought, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's a bad idea. And then I started to think about what, what even, where do you even start in that conversation? And so I thought rather than do this in my head and end up down this rabbit hole, let's just talk about it. Like we've tried an ungodly amount of beer. Um, some of them we've really liked, a lot of them we've really hated. And the, the, the reality is the vast majority of them are forgettable the moment they leave the table and they fit somewhere in that two to four range. Um, Can I talk about the best typo I've seen maybe in any question ever asked? Yeah, this is so good. What bees would you recommend for beer a bit? (laughs) Hey man, as long as they're angry, pretty much anything works. Uh, I drink anything you put in front of me. It was like, drink it or you get the bees. Um, Here are the bees. Yeah, real uh, wicker man scenario. So I know you didn't intend that, Alex. But if you want the most successful tactic, give them the bees, unless they drink yeah. the beer. Honey bees. Um, <laughs> so, so if if you were going to after after this mountain of beer we've walked on, introduce a beer beginner to something. 
where do you start and what's the framework for starting? Like, what's the first question you're trying to answer? Ooh, so here's where I come from. Um, and I've done this quite a, a bit because I'm a terrible influence on my friends. Um, you have to assess why they're a beer beginner. Mm, like, so mm, okay. th that's the key. If it's a taste thing, you want to like, if you can engage their taste, but there's a series of lists on the internet that is like beer for people who don't like beer or beer that mm -hmm. doesn't taste like beer. Um, so like a, a delicious grand mimosa is definitely not going to make anyone have to deal with bitterness as a flavor that they don't like or a note. Sure. Um, so it's a cider, but you could transition into that. And then there are like the malts like Rattler and you're slowly moving more beer adjacent through sweeter things. If that's their palate. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the thing. Uh, they could now. Here's the thing: we've had friends who don't like to drink because they've had um, incidences with alcohol in their past, right. in terms right. of not them, but like their parents or their family. Um, I would never force that person into it, but if they were interested in doing it, it's not so much the beer at that point, so as um, making sure that whatever beer you pick isn't triggering and making sure they feel like they're in a safe space. So like not right. front house, not bar time. You need to like having a quiet hangout on your back porch or something that's like safe and an indication that like the goal is social activity mm -hmm. and lubricating that, not getting wrecked and passing out mm -hmm. in a gutter. So like that is more about maintaining a certain space. Um, if they're not familiar with beer because they have been not uh, invited to the sort of social situations that would have beer, in previous cases and they are somewhat distanced from that and new to that scene as an adult um then you just want low abv you want to be safe you don't want them to get like right you know yeah. smashly hammered walking through the taco bell drive-through and puking everywhere the first time they drink um because i've had that as well you know being in the nerd space it, it sounds like i'm like getting 20 year olds drunk but in actuality it's like a 40 year old man who's never had beer before. And you just want to make sure that they're like, okay. Um, so I really, I really think the first assessment rather than like, what beer do you pick is like, why have they not drank beer before? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, and I think that's and compensate for that. I think that's uh, in some ways the right question and not too far off from the board game question. Right. Which is like people who are like kind of in or know about board games and they want to try more board games, but they didn't like Monopoly, right? I mean, you kind of start with that discovery question, which is like, what do you or don't you like that has stopped you from doing mm -hmm. this before? And I think that's a good place to be. Um, the more I thought about it, like my my introduction was all to all this, I think was not good, right? So like I started with like Bud Heavy and, and then everything after that was just deviation from the mean. And I think the problem is when you start with something like Bud Heavy, which is traditionally conceived of as beer, and you go, okay, this is what beer tastes like. Now everything else has to fit somewhere on either end of that, rather than, I think, starting with variety or spectrum in style. And so... Yeah, I had I the money or the means to get the craft beers we have now when I was in college, I'd be dead. Right. Right. Totally. In college, I pretty much stuck to hard alcohol because you guys drank fucking swill. Like, yeah, we did. Yeah, we uh, did. Bailey right. would bring in, you know, the cube of key ice for the night, and I would be like, no, I, 
I'm going to drink trash rum and call myself right. lucky for it. Uh, yeah. Mickey's. He would just drink an excessive amount of Mickey's. And then um, chuck them at you. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, so this has actually happened to me a couple times now. Like you, once people find out that, you know, we do a podcast about board games and beer, there is this kind of like exploratory, like, oh, you know, I'm interested in beer, but I've never really gotten into it that much. Where should I start? And so if you can swing it, one of the things that I have found is helpful is starting with kind of a tasting setting of different styles. So here's a traditional American lager, and here's a really drinkable kind of light IPA to introduce you to this notion of bitterness. And here's a sour, but not too incredibly sour, maybe more like Boulevard's Ginger Lemon Rattler, something in the tart range, something that really feels, oh, I didn't know beer could do this. Um, here's a stout, right? Something that, that, that has a totally different flavor profile, but very comfortably fits the, the stereotype of beer. And this sampling profile thing, I've tried this a few times now, and you know, accounting for setting and cost, it's a really helpful way, I think, for people not to get trapped on, I don't like beer because I don't like that. Because part of the problem here is like making, helping people understand that like there is no that. There's a bunch of different thises, and, uh, and, and that's just the way beer has expanded. And so a sampling approach with styles, I think to your point, light ABV, ABV and less is more early on is definitely a good place to go. Um, you know, hitting somebody with uh, like a, an Abraxas on day one, it, it, it's great to show them how delicious beer can be. It's terrible to give them 13% of alcohol. I mean, yeah, we're, yeah. we're jaded libertines. Like just cause we gave it a five, that's not a way to start off. Like right? I love it. Cause it's got jalapeno and it's 14%. Like, no, don't, don't listen to us sometimes we're there's there's whale vomit in this one Um, and so i just you know i wouldn't recommend that kind of i also think it's like a good rule there uh especially if you're gonna go that sampling route starting with the most extreme version of anything is not a good idea yeah Um, lighter lower abv most basic founders all day ipa boom do that um uh the 10 barrel brewing cucumber crush boom do that or boulevard's ginger lemon rather you know what i mean um like a three blind mice brown ale i mean start with the so the, so let's go let, let's go like a best case scenario you get uh your typical flight has five mm-hmm. sure yeah. your typical flight you're at like flying saucer where they've got fucking everything on tap yeah. um what's your what's your um diagnostic flight like what do you put on that five to see okay what are they into how can we uh narrow this down more Sure, sure, sure. That's a good question. Okay, so I think I do. Um, okay, off the top of my head, for farmhouse saisonny kind of this, the, the you know the emerging Belgian styles that that we're well, not emerging anymore, but we're starting to like a lot. Uh, like tank seven, throw a tank seven on there just to see you know how beer can be floral. It can it can really be different. Throw a Boulevard Ginger Lemon Rattler on there, I think, really to kind of like blow people's minds around beer. Even though it's not technically a beer. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't get into that shit either. Just get what they'll drink. Uh, Mr. Brown, if they have it. If they've got it. If you want something brown and malty, that is the fucking epitome of a brown ale as far as I'm concerned. That's oh, exactly you know, right. uh, maybe like a coffee porter, uh, like something basic, like a Black Butte, uh, you know, from Deschutes or something like that. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even a victory at sea. Like, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Something something that's not stout, but kind of like if you like this, maybe you're ready. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then probably like Founders All Day IPA or um, uh, Sierra Nevada's uh, or, or Modus Operandi from Ska Brewing, um, something that fits squarely in the category of like this is stock IPA, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to blow your mind. It's, you know, I think, I think modus operandi is six or six and a half percent. I think all the IP is like four and a half or five. Maybe. Yeah. It's not like Something a double square. dry hopped anything right. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably a good starter board. Well, yeah. do you think about like maybe also pairing it with food? Uh, Cause some beers I know are a lot better with a dinner or something. Like, yeah, I don't think it hurts. I don't yeah. think it hurts at all. I, I, you know, I think the risk there is that you're adding, you're adding complexity and some things don't go mm-hmm. well together or, you know, the food, this is coming from someone who eats peanut butter crackers in your kitchen in between takes. So I'm probably not the the best person to talk about pairing beer and food, but I think there's probably more benefit than risk to mm-hmm. doing that in a, in a sampling setting. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Plus I think yeah. to Caleb's point, it's more social. I yeah. eat food like a picky four year old and I, uh, I drink like a man who just left a desert. So the the, the disconnect <laughs> for the pairing there uh, is not uh, is not really good for me right. to speak on that. But right. um, yeah, I hope that helps. But uh, all this beer talk makes me want, predictably, a beer. So let's do it. Uh, Ross, what are you drinking? Uh, this was in my fridge for a while. Uh, this is from Leaky Boot Meadery. It's the collar. Uh, it's got a, a picture of a guy, uh, some sort of workman with a thing. It's a honey wine finished in spirit barrels. Did you say uh, Leaky Boot or Leaky Roof? Leaky Roof. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Leaky Ross, Roof. Before, before you drink that, you said it's been sitting in your fridge for a while. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and let's let's throw a baseball at that date. What's a while mean? Um, at least a year, I would imagine. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Probably longer. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's as old as some of those glow sticks. So good luck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't think it's that old, but yeah, we'll uh, give it a sip here. Good luck, buddy. Yeah. For, for those of you who don't remember or didn't hear the Leaky Roof uh, episode last time, we we did not care for the last Leaky Roof mead we got. And Ross's face suggests this is not different. It's not great it's not it's uh it's not as bad as the other one was um i would give well, it a two it's uh flat i mean it's it's uh well yeah. it's like two years old yeah yeah. Right. yeah a weird thing about carbonation is that it does go away um well i think a yeah. two is quantitatively better i mean caleb you wanted to give the last one a negative 50 so yeah, yeah. this i this almost a- cut my tongue out yeah <laughs> And that was only so you could like this is a this is a wine bottle size. Uh, this is a bomber. <laughs> I poured uh, Maddie a glass of this as well, and uh, I've not heard any cries of anguish coming from the living room. So uh, I have to assume it's uh, yeah. We don't have to uh, brave the emergency department and get well. Yeah, by by that standard. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're we're going to talk. We're doing a nerd splainer. We've not done one for a hot minute, and this is partially because there's also a good sports splainer. And I thought let's just spread the love around here, um, and also because I have been in some RPG channels with all of you more recently, as you've been doing some uh, setting building, and it just kind of struck me that it was interesting. We had a question that was adjacent to this, so I thought, you know what, let's just talk about it. Um, when it comes to choosing a setting in an RPG, where and how does that question enter the process for you? Uh, Ross, you want to take this? Yeah, so choosing an RPG setting is sort of like the first question you ask uh, when you're like, I want to run a game. I want to play a game. Um, you know, like what setting is sort of, for me, the, the very first question because the setting informs 
what kind of adventure it's going to be, what kind of game it's going to be. Um, and while you can use different rule systems, and systems obviously matter in different settings, uh, the setting is going to be, I feel, a lot more important to what kind of story you want to tell. Um, because, you know, you can use the modern world can be used for both, you know, action or horror or drama or any number of genres but like that's going to be different than you know setting a fantasy setting so um and for me it's it's a it's a group discussion like i figure out who i want to play in this game and then sort of like talk about the setting uh in both broad and then we start broad like what what setting in general and then like sort of start working in so uh, uh from that like what kind of things do we want to have it present in the game what kind of things we don't want to have present in the game so it's it's very much a group collaborative discussion about uh what kind of game we want to do so um it but it's the very first it's a very first question like what, what kind of game is it like the setting is the single most important factor for that so ross do you yeah. think that most dms gms take that that same collaborative uh kind of deductive approach to things or do you think that that's something you've developed over time i think i think there's a big split uh because people have different ideas of what they want in a game um there, there are different styles of gm there are some gms who are very focused um i've heard of a lot of different approaches uh there are people who uh, that they focus almost entirely on characterization uh, and like what kind of characters, what kind of role-playing opportunities that's going to be. And then the settings almost an afterthought compared to that. Um, then on the other hand, you have GMs who like, I want, I only care about tactical combat. And so whatever setting I'm going to be is going to be something where we're going to have lots of dice rolling and killing monsters or bad guys and that kind of thing. Um, so uh, it, it's definitely my, and my approach is not, universally shared i would say that uh there are um yeah there every 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 gm has sort of a, a a set of preferences um a lot of times i think it's also do you want to run something in x okay and then that system has an implied setting or a very explicit setting and that they go hand in hand you know you can't really run shadow run except in the shadow run setting um uh, dnd can be run in different settings but they all have a lot of commonalities in them um, and so, yeah, I would definitely say it varies a lot among GMs about what their main priority is. Uh, like, why do, why are they gaming? Like, why are they taking all this extra effort to run a game? So, um, yeah. Caleb, is Ross's approach reflective of your approach or does setting come into play somewhere else in the equation? Yeah. Uh, I think he, I think he didn't include a step that he includes when doing it, uh, just cause he assumes it's natural. Like if you're running the game, while it is a sort of democratic solution, you want to be with the whole group and you want to do what they do. Um, you also have to like limit their choices, to things you're willing to do. Like I'm not interested in running a fantasy game, like go in a hole, kill wildlife and steal their money. It, it means nothing to me. In fact, the few times I do run that, I'll be like, well, I don't want to prep for it and I'll be drunk the whole time. If you want a bad fantasy adventure, I'll do that. And they're like, yeah, Okay. And like once the buy ends there, that's fine. But you have to be explicit about like, yeah, we're not going to go slay the Dark Lord to uh, unite the fiefdoms of Tam or whatever the fuck it is. I don't, I don't care. Like um, and, and that's just for their own good, because if I don't give a shit, I'm not going to write a good game. Um, so I, I do limit the options since I have to run it if I'm in a if I'm playing a game that has like a GM role and it's not a GM less game 
and we're not just trying it out, but we're going to do like a lengthy campaign thing. Uh, I will, I will limit options to like, we're going to do this. Uh, right. and, and, and if amongst that choices, like you don't include anything on there as like a spoiler or like a red herring, like you need to include everything on there that you're willing to do and let them decide act at, you know, uh, democratically what they want to do. But yeah, you, of course you have to limit those options because there's, there's games you don't want to run. And if you don't want to run it, you're not going to run a good game. Yeah. Would you, would you say that setting and or, uh, <coughs> system has like a more directional influence on the games you're likely to run. Um, I think we're a little skewed cause we do RPPR. So sometimes like a new system will come out and we, we, we want to cover that new system cause we're sort right, of right, magpies right. about RPGs in the same way that you and I are magpies about board games. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So the setting will be sort of picked um, uh, from, from whatever settings implied by that system. Uh, but, uh, another thing we're spoiled with is that we have so many players that you can sort of, um, pick the setting and the system and then pick players from people who right. like that, right. uh, Such a big which, cool. yeah. which is not, uh, something most people can do, but, um, uh, yeah, well, there's, there, there are certain settings that like I don't engage with, but other people are really excited about. Like, I know Ross, you guys ran a, like a fallout game or something like that. Well, that that fell apart after like one session. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, but when they were talking about it, I'm like, I have no interest in playing like a setting that's already been done. Like, mm. it's either the setting with the game, or but I don't want to do like a video game setting. It's just not me. It's not like yeah anybody else. Uh, so yeah, you know, I've had the uh, exact yeah. opposite experience of Caleb, where I've had an idea. Uh, well, I mean, it, actually, it's along the same lines where I've had an idea for a campaign setting, and I pitched it to the players, and they're like, nah. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not doing that then. Like I had an idea for a modern day sort of horror slash mystery game where it would all be set in one town. And the idea would be you build up the town and the residence and it would be kind of like a Twin Peaks sort of situation where there's multiple layers of mystery and, you know, weird things going on. And uh, but players, a lot of the RPPR cast actually does not really care for horror um, except for like you know occasional one shots, there there's a, a a lot of players who are not really fans of that, and so uh, and there's also players who aren't really fans of uh, fantasy D and D. So like that's why we've been playing a lot of sci fi lately. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, there there is uh, this kind of buy in between both. So like I'll pitch game ideas, and what I've learned to do is pitch multiple ideas that I am willing to run, and the players will just sort of pick the one that they can also. Oh sure. And yeah, then uh, we'll go from there. So, um, yeah, that's kind of so. Yeah, that's sort of the best approach that I've had. Uh, of course, now that we're, I'm not running <laughs> running games in person anymore. I do have more players available in in a weird sense because you know I can more. I'm more open to picking players who are not at Springfield, and so I'm probably going to try and run. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to run next, but. I'm not going to have those same kind of questions because I know I, if I pitch a setting, I can get three to five players for basically anything at this point. Right, I, totally. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, hey, thanks for that, guys. And if you're interested in Ross and Caleb's takes on RPGs, how they build RPGs, where things live for them in RPGs, or games more broadly that are tabletop games, board games, uh, don't forget to check out RPPR. That's where we're playing public radio. And on that note, uh, Caleb's going to grab another beer, and we'll be right back for Ask Mix the Six. Caleb, what uh, what in honest to God's name is that beer that you're about to drink? 
Well, this is from Brownie. Um, and I just want you to see the delightful label. Mm. <laughs> Look at this happy little, happy little dwarf man playing a bagpipe. Um, it is from Belgium, despite whatever that accent was. Uh, <laughs> it is from, holy shit, I'm going to butcher this. Brasserie de Achouf. Um, I don't know. Look at the show notes. It is the Mixchouffe, maybe? Well, yes. Uh, it's a Belgian brown beer with uh, maybe the least pronounceable thing I've ever uh, said aloud on this podcast. Yeah, I don't know what the rating is going to be, but in terms of rating difficulty pro- to pronounce beer names, yeah, this is a hard five. It's, <laughs> the, hard, it's the hardest of fives. Um, yeah, it's one of the 7,327,000 beers that Brownie sent us. Uh, and there are some very interesting bottles in those boxes that he sent, like some beers that we were definitely not going to find and or try. So I'm curious to know how this one is. Um, that's interesting. It's I don't think it's a farmhouse. Belgian um, brown, right? But it's Belgian, and I, I you know, I want to say I can taste the Belgian yeast at this point because um, it's got that sort of skunk that you expect of a of a Belgian uh, yeast strain. Um, but I can't tell how old it is. It, it's okay. It's a serviceable brown. Um, I, I think there's a lot of people for whom the the skunk and the bitterness of it uh, is going to turn people off because the bitterness is sort of lighter. It's not really what you would expect in the malt uh, of a typical brown. Um, but it's good. I will finish it. It's a three. I'd give it a three. Um, that is saying God knows how it, Brownie transported them very well, but there's only so much Brownie can do with the distribution change of whatever store he bought them in. So God, God knows what it tastes like in Belgium, but uh, it's a three when it got here to me through the vicissitudes of the global economy. So for a circuitous route, that's pretty good, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, we're into Ask Mix 6, where you submit questions to us, and, and we try to respond to them meaningfully, and sometimes we're successful in that. And today, Friedrich has asked, how does it feel to have a whole bunch of strangers knowing you far better than you know them individually? And he is, of course, talking about the great Mix 6 podcast listening community. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weigh in last on this one, because I've been doing this for the least amount of time, and frankly probably just have less information out there about my feelings on things. Although some of my feelings on things are fairly strong and fairly, fairly uh, circulated. Um, But Ross, you've been doing this like 57 years and it feels like a lot of people just deeply know Ross Payton because the internet. Um, What's it like to know that there are that many people out there who have listened to your voice, who have heard you talk about yourself for this long, Mm -hmm. who you, who you just don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's profoundly weird and never stops being weird, uh, both in a good and just kind of unsettling way. So there's both, it's, it's very, it's a very, uh, disassociative experience. Uh, I would say the unvarying intensities, um, because yeah, to see the effects that I've had real effects on people uh, that are multiple, uh, uh, like outside of my circle of friends and family and out that, um, and to see the implications that like strangers talking to strangers about my work uh, and then seeing that evidence that they have talked about it and have been influenced by it is, is very weird. Uh, This goes from like having people recognizing me by my voice at uh, Gen Con 
um, to people who have friended me on Facebook, who I've never met in real life, interacting with other people who I've friended on Facebook and never met and through posts that I've made or through other have made. It's like, oh, this person in Arizona knows this person in Seattle because of me. And um, or then, you know, people on public forums saying, oh, well, you should buy this game because of these podcast episodes. They're great. Um, and yeah, so yeah, that that is uh, it is both very humbling to know that I've had that kind of thing and that there is a fan base that supports me very, very much directly in a very real financial sense and also kind of disassociative like I am you know a micro influencer I am the, the lowest measurable amount of celebrity a person can be and still be called to have that I don't know <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh-huh. yeah yeah so it's um, yeah why well, I, I never predicted this I never set out this was not my goal in life but it it's it's happened and I'm going to cling to it for all it's worth. Ride my own coattails as long as I can, I guess. That's uh, right. Here you yeah. are. You did this. Yeah, exactly. Um, I Caleb, did I'm sure that, you know, that there was already an engine here, right? I mean, from years on RPPR, et cetera, and, and you'd publish some smaller texts and, and RPG supplements here and there. And then red markets happened. Uh, and that base probably grew exponentially and quickly. So what, 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 I mean, just like, what is it like? Uh, cause, cause I, you know, we, you and I go to cons together a lot. We've been to five or six cons together the last couple of years and, and a couple times a day, someone who you don't know comes up to you and asks you to sign their copy of red markets or to talk about a red markets game they've, they've run. Um, yeah. What's, what's that about? Um, well, first off, speaking of Ross's coattails, uh, good luck finding a room, buddy. <laughs> I've made myself at home. Um, I, I'm I'm settled in down there. Uh, so, yeah, I, I agree. Like, you never get used to it uh, in terms of, uh, but by used to it, I mean, like, tolerance or a high from it. Like, I am as thrilled uh, when someone says they, like, read my work or know me from this or that uh, today as I was the first time it happened. It, it's still just amazing to me. Um, that said, I am used to it in terms of, like, I don't know how I'd live my life now if like, uh, anymore without it, because like, um, boy, that internet praise is real fucking fickle and boy, do I fucking need it anyway? Like, because when you get praise from the internet, it's typically out of nowhere. It's always unexpected. Um, it's usually effusive and unqualified. And and boy, it helps me get through a day in 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 ways I can't even begin to quantify. And even when it's bad, uh, with the exception of like Kickstarter death threats, um, it's just like easily to it's easy to dismiss because like it's it's someone who hasn't really engaged with your work because uh, most people who don't like your work don't say anything about it. Um, so that sort of parasocial relationship. Um, also, I've had a lot of good luck, like meeting people parasocially and having it turn into like really profound, actual real life friendships. Um, and, uh, I think Ross could probably say the same in, in a big way. Uh, but the, that, that's how I make friends now parasocially. Like I am, we're more likely to make friends via this or RPPR or board games online than I am at work, which is not saying I, it's not saying I don't have work friends, but like that would be really depressing to me if it was like high school again, if my social circle was 
compressed to a longitude and latitude. Because like the thing I loved most about college was realizing that the majority of people who were my quote unquote friends were people who I had arranged a detente with. Like people, we had a ceasefire because we had to live in this. We had nothing in common because I was a fucking weirdo. Like, but like my friends were were people for whom we had a you know a no hostility ceasefire. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And uh, we actually didn't have a lot in common and we didn't have a lot to like about each other. And I, I, I knew the difference after I left high school uh, and got to college and you started making friends based off like interests and commonalities and, you know, uh, goals in life. Um, but the thing is, the, the odd thing is, is that like I know that the majority of people I know are strangers uh, to me and they know way more about me than I know about them. Um, but it actually has led me to far more deep and meaningful relationships based on like similarities of kind and family of choice. Um, So it's sort of the irony of like having this wider circle of largely more shallower connections has led me to a deeper, more intimate circle of of deeper connections. Um, But I'm also like kind of prepared for it because I'm a teacher. And if your teacher is doing it right, they don't tell you shit about themselves And as a result, the students are way more interested in your personal life than any random passerby would be. So like that sort of disconnect and like information um, disparity is something I've lived with before I even got in with RPPR. So, yeah, yeah. Being a teacher is good training for that. And and it was certainly helpful for me in recognizing that, that this is not unidirectional, but there's some unidirectionality to it in terms of information flow. Um, you know, the yeah, the first part. time a kid tells you, oh, you're, why are you wearing that? I was like, why? That's your Tuesday sweater. You wear that on Tuesdays. Like, the, the first time someone pays that much attention to you, it's like, it's dark. <laughs> right. Something, something went wrong. <laughs> yeah. 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 Grab the bag and run. Um, yeah. I, uh, so for me, uh, I don't think about it all that much uh, because it's kind of confounding. And I'll tell you that the, the times that it really matters to me that there is this information disparity. Um, is like when someone will randomly reach out over socials or like tag me on Twitter or Facebook or like send me a DM on Discord and ask about a very specific thing that I've said or or challenge me on a very specific topic. And part of the problem here is that there's typically just a delay in when someone raises the issue and when we've recorded me saying that thing. Like sometimes that delay is like three months or six months and I don't remember saying the thing. Also, I was drinking variously heavily while I said the thing. So my propensity to remember was already diminished and time has not helped to that. And so there, there are moments where when this happens, someone wants to interrogate one of my perspectives that I have chosen to make public in this format. And I am not equipped to interrogate that perspective like I was in the moment. And then the other problem that I have there is uh, I got, for the most part, I got all of my desire to uh, endlessly debate ticky tack things out in like high school and early college, like somewhere, somewhere mid grad school, I just gave up on that and was like, yeah, I'm really annoying. And I'm not going to do that much anymore. I mean, I'm going to do some of it. And and like, I think it's fairly clear when I feel really strongly about something and it shows up on the podcast, but very little, like I care very little about a lot of these things in such a way that I want to actively debate them or like go any deeper than what I've said in eight to 10 minutes in any given segment. Just because like, I don't take the time to form robust opinions about a lot of stuff. Things are very fleeting for me and the things that I do spend my time on, I really explore deeply and get to know deeply. And that's kind of where I want. 
And so where this runs well, into Michael Jordan problem, doesn't play a lot of horse. Like, right. You did right. it professionally for a while. You're not, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's pretty boring to you. Yeah. And, and I just like, I don't like being an asshole. I don't like feeling like an asshole. I don't. So when people do reach out about stuff, occasionally, like I get paralyzed because I don't remember what I felt like in that moment six months ago. I haven't really taken the time since then to determine if I still feel similarly about that thing. And I don't know where you're coming at it from. So like, I don't know if you're about to debate me or about to agree with me. And I'm not sure what my position was in the first place. So it's real <laughs> dynamic. And, and so that, that is kind of weird. Um, sometimes I feel like, uh, like one of those tennis ball machines, just like shooting tennis balls into the air. And occasionally someone like runs, onto the court with a racket and is like, like you motherfucker and just like hits the thing back and I'm like I don't know man that was tennis ball 487 today couldn't tell you <laughs> why it was different or important and uh, and I feel like a jerk for not giving sometimes I feel like a jerk for not being that invested in any one thing that I have said over the course of three and a half years on this podcast to not be able to engage someone who listens and puts in the time and really does care about what we're doing and it's not that I don't want to necessarily, it's just like I just, I decided at some point it'd be impossible to, um, that this would have to be a full-time job for me to even kind of cross that threshold of being able to manage all those relationships and all those, all that information. And it's just, it, it's not. And so that's where things get weird for me. Other than that, like, uh, I've only had positive interactions because of all this. And, and, and to your point, Caleb, I mean, a couple people, thanks to this podcast and RPPR, have become like dear friends. You know, Baz, Burke, um, Jeb Dale, Noah. I mean, like a lot of these people, I consider like good friends, and I I didn't know them but for this. And there doesn't feel like an information imbalance. And so it, it's been Maddie's amazing. okay. I'm still I'm still on the fence about. Wow, that. Maddie's wow. yeah, Maddie's fun. Wow, honestly, honestly, I liked Maddie a lot, and then uh, and then I I realized that she was you know uh, uh, she, she thought it was a good idea to marry Ross, and I was like, well, wait a minute, maybe I got a bad read here. So she's definitely back in the. I, I'm interrogating is what I'm saying. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, th- there's some information imbalance. Uh, I guess I'm used to it. I guess I don't really think about it until someone throws it in my face, not not maliciously, and then I have to go, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah I forgot. Uh, people listen to this, and I said something. Damn, now I'm on the hook for that. <laughs> and I forget what the hook is. Yeah, it'll it, that, that feeling will only get better as long as the, the podcast goes on, because when somebody's like, oh, man, you're really great in this episode. Could you explain this part? And they're like, what? Oh, yeah, you recorded this in 2014. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I definitely remember what I said back then. Yeah, there's no fucking expiration date. That's yeah. the that's the fucking craziest thing to me. Yeah. Right. Oh, or like, especially when people ask about like a specific beer because they just started listening to the show. They're on episode like six and they're like, Hey, have you had any more of that insert name of random beer? And I, I, I'm <laughs> taking you at your word that I had that beer in the first place. Uh, uh-huh. So I don't know. I've met people who like got into RPPR in high school listening to me. And that fucking weirds me out. Like, Oh yeah. I shouldn't be formative. In any way. <laughs> no. Uh, like, barely when I'm just telling you where the comma goes. Even then, I'm likely to fuck it up. Like, definitely yeah. not in this context. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 wild, man. Yeah. Um, hey, Frederick, thanks so much for the question. Hope you're doing well. And on that note, I got to grab a beer, and we'll be right back with the sports planner.
Hey, Spencer, what are you drinking? So this is from Lagunitas. And when I pulled it out of the fridge, I thought, well, certainly we've had this because Lagunitas is big and they've been around for a bit. And then I got to thinking, like, we may have actually not had that much Lagunitas beer on the podcast, um, even though it feels like we should have. It, I don't know. It's fairly mass market. Yeah, I guess that's I guess that's true. Um, anyways, this is also from Brownie. This is the Lagunitas Pills. They're Czech style Pilsner, and you know, like a Pilsner. Yeah, about to get edgy with it. Pilsners. When you want a beer and you want twelve of them and not remember them. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's really good. That's like a that actually has a little flavor. Uh, and I don't know why. I don't know if that's actually a feature or a bug uh, for for Pilsner. Um, but I uh, I enjoy that. That's a four for me. Like I would drink this beer again. If we ever make a brewery, we're going to make a Pilsner called Philip K. Dick, um, and it's going to be all about drinking as many of them as possible and then not remembering what happened. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 It's a that that's a that is one of the better Pilsners I have had, uh, which. I feel like is equivalent to saying, yeah, it's one of the better haircuts I've had, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I had to do it and it's, it's better than not. So, uh, so no, that's, that's a good. four. That's a four. Yeah. We can nice. put that in the talk. All right. Um, so we're going to do a sports planer, but unlike previous sports planers where I have ranted into the microphone variously for eight to 30 minutes about things, uh, this is kind of a sports planer for all. And Grant from Melbourne asks, Will esports use the effects of COVID nineteen, both physical and economic, to exceed normal sports for advertising, audience, and participation? And I'm interested in this question both both in traditional conceptions of esports, League of Legends, WoW, all that bullshit, whatever. Um, I, I'm also I'm interested in this now that uh, like ESPN, for example, has been broadcasting NBA players playing 2K as part of a tournament to offset the fact that there is not actual basketball in the world. Right. Like, I didn't know that was a thing until you just mentioned it. It's so yeah, funny. Yeah. Like you can watch, you can watch basketball players playing 2k or Madden. You can watch football players playing Madden against each other. NASCAR simulated an entire race. I think last weekend or two weekends ago with drivers in like race car simulators and then a shared screen for all this stuff. And so uh, I find this question interesting. I, I don't think there's any way in hell esports does now i think yeah ross um there's actually a couple of really interesting issues about that uh, aside from will it take over um you mentioned uh there there's a uh, virtual uh racing um like nascar but also indycar uh did that and so these f1 drivers are having a problem because now um there's uh, despite how intense like there's a real controversy on driving etiquette, essentially, because in the real world, professional drivers try not to cause crashes, like not not just because they don't want to die, but because they don't want to be responsible for, you know, me- negligent homicide. And it's just <laughs> considered kind of a faux pas to right. cause someone else to crash. But yeah, they're cowards. Got it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But also racing video games, especially the top end ones, are basically almost indistinguishable from right, driving a real car if you have the right equipment. And uh, uh, I mean, the physics are incredibly, the graphics, it, it's almost like the real thing. And so, but the thing is, when you're playing a video game, crashes, not as bad. Uh, so, and like, way more fun. Yeah, way more fun. So, um, there are these racers who are changing basically, like, Indy 500 uh, winners are just like 
fucking deliberately wrecking as a strategy in the game because like it gives them an advantage and so there's this tension in f1 and indie racing uh now because of that so like just change this is now becoming an issue because that's what they're doing um another issue is that uh fighting games you know street fighter tekken those kind of things are very very sensitive to lag and so a lot of people are like should we have do these counters real tournaments sure. compared to the 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 physical ones because now we uh, the the strategy about microseconds of yeah. different yeah, technical yeah. issues yeah right. frames like individual frames uh, uh matter and um if you have la- noticeable lag then like does it even count D- can you really be said to be the world's best you know Mortal Kombat player if uh, lag helped you or something like that. Or right, hurt absolutely. Um, so there's a lot of actual technical issues aside from the popularity. So there, it's, it's actually this huge thing that uh, esports is trying to deal with. So um, I, do, I do think for what it's worth, like uh, in terms of opportunity via moment, uh, I think esports has a clearer opportunity now because of this than they would have had this not happened. Mm-hmm. But I think that window is not about exceeding traditional sports. I think it's about getting people who are interested in watching competitive events. And that's more of a Venn diagram than a circle. Um, I would, I would say, um, I'd go out on a limb here and say more than 50% of the NFL's audience is not looking for the NFL or something. They're looking for the NFL. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, football players playing Madden is certainly novel and many of them might find it funny or enjoyable, but it's a Band-Aid. It, it's something to watch while the NFL isn't on. But, but this isn't subbing one thing for the other. But I do think there are lots of people, like myself, I think I'm probably a good example here. Um, I would probably not naturally watch a lot of esports. Like, I haven't. I mean, I mean I've, I've, I've gotten into some, like, streaming and stuff for Destiny games and whatnot, but I don't really care about esport, esports per se. But now that I am genuinely just interested in watching competitive events, I would actively seek out more esports activities than I would have if the NBA playoffs and Major League Baseball and the NFL, you know, offseason and soon to be preseason were about to start. So I think there is a, a segment of the market where esports can really make headway that they probably weren't going to be able to make otherwise. Do I think they will exceed? No. No, I do not. I, I, you you would have to show me the body of the National Football League uh, and then let me watch it for two days <laughs> to ensure that it was actually dead to, to convince me that, that any competitive event could outpace the capitalistic monolith that is the National Football League for the next five years. Um, yeah, uh, I think... I think you've really hit the nail on the head there. Um, I think it's a great opportunity for esports right now to eat up what limited share of the market is available to them. Right. But um, we're already at a point where uh, people are weighing the cost in the economy against human lives and right. answering, let's go with the economy, fuck human lives. And states are doing that in mass. If you know anything about how a stadium gets made and how interconnected the money is with that fucking grift and corruption. Um, I mean, the NFL has already chosen the NFL over human life on multiple occasions. <laughs> it's only a matter of time. It's ontology. I mean, it's only a matter of time before they grease the white wheels and like secure enough political influence to be like, yeah, opium the stadiums back up. We can't make them come, but people will come because people mm-hmm. are dumb. Like mm-hmm. it, 
there there is no amount of death that will dissuade them from getting back on their nut. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I don't think exceed is even physically possible, no. like within our lifetimes. I uh, think I, I think it will grow. Certainly, it should grow. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I think internationally, there's probably a lot more room here. But internationally, there was already a lot more fervor around these things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think this is a golden moment for esports, and it would be dumb not to capture it. But but I think we're not talking about a gap of inches; we're talking about a gap of miles. Uh, and and I, there's just too much work to do there. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and we're not going to do it. And, and to it's Caleb's generational, point, like yeah, it's generational. Yeah, and to Caleb's point, the, the interconnectedness of sports, and not just the structural and capitalistic interconnectedness of it, but the political connectedness of it. I mean, I'll tell you right now, outside of players and owners, I would imagine the number three group of people who want traditional American sports to get back to normal is politicians, because it is it, it is normal. Um, I, I would argue the at this point in American politics, um, affiliation to certain sports teams for individual political constituents holds more sway than religion. Yes, yes. Which, which is saying something considering the nightmarish effects religion has had on the American political landscape. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think if um, George Bush had said, I am a warrior for God, uh, gone to the Holy land and also the Dallas Cowboys suck. He wouldn't have gotten a second term. Like, no, I, yeah, <laughs> I agree to that. And, and, and even extrapolating a bit, um, at, certainly as the, the seated politicians look towards November, the worst thing, one of the worst things that could happen, because it's clearly not death of thousands of Americans. They've already accepted that. One of the worst <laughs> things that could happen is a subtle, but significant replacement of normal traditional American sports with something very not normal league of legends, because it would signal to a large portion of an older base that things really radically have changed. And none of that part of that base wants to accept that. And so I think there is an active, an active uh, disincentive for, for uh, politicians, leaders, social leaders to, to push some of those units, even though there's a variety of reasons why we all might benefit or why, you know, a number of people might benefit economically from doing that. So no, I just, I think we're, we're, we're talking about uh, too, too thick a quilt here and not a lot of room to, to get a new square in there. But if there ever was time, go for it. Pour, yeah, pour I mean, I think it would there. exceed along an infinite timeline if the opposition, a.k.a. normal sports, stayed still. But no amount of incentive to stay still on human life or morality is going to motivate those. It's Roger Goodall, guys. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. he's Satan incarnate. <laughs> he's <laughs> NFL is going to open next season. It's mm-hmm. just going to happen. They don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, but it, very interesting question, Grant, and uh, definitely caught my eye the moment I saw it because I've kind of been wondering similarly uh, about what the effect is on kind of like subaltern sports. And so, um, interesting topic, Russ. Uh, no. Oh, okay. You leaned in yeah, and, yeah. and here in a zoom world, the only, <laughs> only symbol that I have that someone is about to jump. Well, I, yeah, I just, um, have an article about the, uh, racing, uh, uh situation, uh, vis-a-vis that's what I read, uh, that brought it up. So I was going to, Oh yeah, yeah. You should post it in the discord because th- there's a couple of things that happened in this NASCAR race that I want to talk to you guys about offline. Okay. On yeah. that. Uh, one more beer and we're into drunk enough. Caleb, what are you drinking? 
Well, this is from the Citizens Brewery of Plizen. Please, please be that. Uh, I'm just going to read the title. I'm going to read the the lore first. I'm going to do lore first before the title. Uh, in 1842, the Citizens Brewery of Plizen sprued the world's first golden pilsner and never stopped. We make it in the same way, in the same place, with 100% of our ingredients from the same farming regions of Czech, as always. So this is the Citizens Brewery of Plizen's Pilsner Urquell. It's also, it, this is back-to-back Pilsners. I would have to say, because uh, we've not done a Pilsner episode, in all of the mix six, this would have to be the first time, and I'm not going to backtrack this, um, that we've done back-to-back Pilsners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Teddy would love this episode. Teddy uh, would love it. I'm very so, curious. because I, I am also very had, curious. The, origin, the OG Pilsner, what a claim. I have had that Pilsner before. Uh, when, when you get into the European section, like the kind of like mass distributed European section of liquor stores, this is one of the more prominent beers. <laughs> and I was going uh, like, it's like, it's typically skunky. It's like, yeah, kill, but it's his face. Oh. As, it looks like a skunk sprayed him in the face. It, it's yeah. a very similar reaction. Yeah. Um, holy shit. Uh, <laughs> did you just drink pepper spray? Like, Okay, got, that, that can't red. be as intended. Uh, I I would I would never disparage a citizen's own brewery, uh, at, but that can't be as intended for a flavor because that is skunk. Uh, that is just the the estrus is off on that. That is too old. Uh, it did not age well. So I, I want to give it like an NA if you're actually looking to try the OG Pilsner because. Um, I'm sure it's better in Czechoslovakia uh, and not uh, all the way over here, however it got here, because uh, that cannot be the intended flavor of it. Um, is, it a, is it a green bottle? It is not. It's brown. Okay. Uh, so they, they, so uh, what I really want to give that is a non-applicable, but for now it's going to have to be a one because I am not going to take one more fucking sip of it. It has turned. That's the uh, bit. I mean, I just don't think we can be in the business of, of navigating variously whether or not we think a thing is or is not in, in its proper state. I think we've got to go I, I will say, taste. if you see it in a store, I wouldn't avoid buying it because that can't be what the intention was. But that is, whoo, no thank you. No, 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 no. I thought the skunk was hard on the brown. Like, people won't like that. The Pilsner is undrinkable as it currently is, but uh, God knows how it got to me. So yeah. yeah, that's right. Okay, well, all in all, I would say a mixed bag on lots of brownie beers, some really good. I thought that Czech style Pilsner that I had was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the cider was a, was a nice pull today. But other than that, we've definitely had some lower scores. These things happen, and it's, it's, it's such as the math on trying this many beer, people. <laughs> this many beer. Oof. Um, Caleb Warden drunk enough, and this was your suggestion, so I will let you uh, I will let you introduce it as you introduced it to us. So um, I've lately I found myself in this position, and I found my position in similar uh, with a lot of the parasocial relationships we talked about earlier. Um, I find myself in the position of trying to explain the rationale of certain U.S. institutions. And it's only getting harder for me. So, for instance, um, uh, we have a very great friend who is in Brazil. He, he studies in uh, public health. He's a fan of RBR. Uh, he's, he's talked about studying public health in the United States. 
and he's wanted to get like an on the ground history of like why our medical system is the way it is. And I've also had to do the same with like foreign exchange students trying to explain like why we do school the way we do with certain entrance tests. And uh, recently I've had this situation occur with my parents who can't quite understand why things are reopening if the virus is still a thing because they're very disconnected and unplugged from the news. And what I have to do is I end up making these long, long, um, detailed uh, explanations as to why certain things are occurring. And then I end up at the end of them have to say, now all of that thing I said, ignore that. Cause that's just what we say. That's not how it's actually happening. What's actually happening is this. So like, for instance, um, Missouri has reopened. And so my parents were of the mind, well, it's reopened. We're going to go here. And my mom's a little disconnected. She just had knee surgery. I'm like, no, you're not. Do, do not under any Absolutely circumstances go there. That. And they're like, well, why would they reopen? If not, I'm like, mom, they didn't reopen. It's like, well, you're going back to school, aren't you? I was like, no, we're not going back to school. But you said they're doing seated summer school. Well, yeah. Uh, well, they wouldn't do that if there was a disease around. I'm like, yes, they they would. They, they are. They're just, it's like, well, what are they going to do to the disease if they go back to reopening? It's like, mom, they're not going to do anything. They're just going to say they're doing things. And then they're just going to reopen them. Um, so, uh I, I don't know. My my basic drunk enough here is how do you talk about the reality of America to people who aren't immersed in the nightmare of it without sounding like a crazy person? Because mm -hmm. I sound like a crazy person every time. And I don't want to be me, the person who's sounding crazy, because like the institution's crazy. I recognize that. But I sound like a lunatic, like try, trying to explain standardized testing in the ACT to a kid who comes from a European education system is difficult because like you have to explain the concept of tracking and how it's like undemocratic and meritocracy and how we shouldn't do means testing. And then after you've detailed all those complex concepts, it's like, so that's why we say we do it. It doesn't actually achieve any of those goals. And in fact, does the exact opposite. <laughs> Untethered from all of that. Yeah. So I don't know how to talk about like America anymore without sounding like utterly backwards because there is no justification for what we do other than the momentum of history or money. It's it's either oligarchy or it's because we've always done that. Um, but you feel obligated to say something other than, I don't know, shit's fucked. It's been right. the way it is. Right. And in doing so, you end up rattling off these obscure concepts, which exist only as a lie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I don't know where to begin there. Um, so the reason this was initially interesting to me when you pitched it is that I finished uh, The Dispossessed yesterday by Ursula mm -hmm. Taylor Gwynn. And it's like my first full bore Ursa K. Le Guin. I have a lot of thoughts on it. It's a great book, isn't it? Yeah. Unbelievably good. Um, yeah. She, uh, like, uh, the hype is real. You know, I'd, I'd like read some short fiction here and there, but but the kind of seamless navigation of like science and philosophy in that book was just stunning. Um, but uh, what you're describing is very much what the protagonist is going through the moment he arrives on Eurus and like going to different places and talking to different people is that he is constantly negotiating, explaining his reality and the reasons for his reality to people who, to people whose reality was the reason they went and did something totally different in the first place. And yeah, but the thing is, is like, that's the, that's the perspective of someone I'm talking to. Right. 
Right. Like, imagine from the perspective of someone on the planet he's visiting, also knowing that he's right and being unable to do anything to change. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Right. And so, and so that what's interesting to me about this is like taking the other side of that. Then it's like, okay, but as I listen to all of it, right? Like, no one, you're not supposed to read Gatsby and go, like, oh, yeah, totally. That all sounds great. Right. You're supposed to read Gatsby (laughs) and be like, fuck, wait, what? Yeah, wealth is that destructive? It's like, oh yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, and so I do. It is weird now, and um, part of the problem here is that um, we just lack. Um, let me talk about my education. Uh, well, I, what is probably like representative of a standard education path for a uh, middle class white kid who grew up in Missouri. Um, You spend like the the bulk of your um, elementary, middle, secondary education uh, learning, learning and embodying and believing in the great myths of America. And, and those are uh, North stars points in the distance. That's the direction this is all heading. And even in moments that should shatter that narrative, that should let you see behind the curtain for just a second, 9-11, even then, the the specter of like nationalism or mythic acceptance of something greater than persists. And then you go to college, and in college, uh, a lot of that stuff gets torn away very quickly, and not incrementally. Um, it is a fall off of a cliff, depending on what kinds of classes you take and where you go to college. It, it's not it's not you know day two thousand where suddenly you're like you know what I think there's something fucked up going on here. Right, it's day ten uh, outside of your comfort zone and in a new educational institution, depending on the institution. And then you spend—at least I've spent—the rest of my life trying to reconcile living happily somewhere in between those things. And living happily means being able to reconcile it day to day, so I feel like I can still be here and not feel like a complete asshole for being here. Um, and so then when that day-to-day reconciliation runs into someone who doesn't have to reconcile it, who has not developed, Americans have developed perhaps the most robust vocabulary for shifting their perspectives randomly and dynamically as any people on the planet. Um, and, and to talk to someone who has not had to shift their perspective or, or you know, make fluid or Plato-like their values or morals or, or ontology every time something runs into this other thing we're dealing with, it, it is, it's fucking, it's, it's embarrassing is what it is. Honestly. I mean, sometimes it's just embarrassing. Oh, it's absolutely I mean? embarrassing. Yeah. To, to have to explain to someone that in the middle of all the, 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 the American sandwich of mythic nationalism and everything is fucked in the middle of that, the Turkey in there is, acceptance of a myth and acceptance that we all just keep saying the myth to one another over and over again, because that's what we do. And then having to explain navigating that it, it's fucking mind numbing. I mean, um, and, 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 and the more I end up on either end of that, the unhappier I get. And so I have to be very careful not to slip too far on either end of that bun because I will, I will get depressed. And, and this is also about my ability to survive in a world where I understand how fucked up all that is. Yeah, and I don't even like really say the myths anymore, but then it comes down to like a person who is completely um, 
disabused of the notion that like this is a, anyway a sane and rational way to do things is going to ask, well, why don't you do something about it? And then I have to be like, well, I don't want to die. Right. right. <laughs> Everyone has guns <laughs> or I are, are, um, I have no power because I have no money because we're right. an oligarchy. <laughs> I have to explain those things to them. Um, and that that's just, I just don't know how to get around it. It's it's very uh, perplexing to me, mm-hmm. like to be put in that position because, like, um, and you talk about like the robust vocabulary we've developed. For, I don't think we have. Like when I look at other cultures, like um, I'm going to butcher these Japanese terms, but the the Japanese can join the Czechs and the Belgians in the class action lawsuit against my pronunciation of their language. Um, uh, Hone and tatamai. Uh, which are these terms, which is the facade society agrees to actually talk about and acknowledge exists versus the actual truth of the situation. And um, there's this big idea in Japanese culture, and there's there's more uh, concepts wrapped up in those terms I'm probably missing as, you know, a bakagaijin who doesn't know about it. But the it's an idea of, it's an idea in Japanese culture is that the the society never represents the truth of what's actually happened. Like you're never allowed to talk about what is what is functionally going on, and like they at least that's a term to grasp with it. That's all I've been having to use. Like, look, here's this thing they're gonna say is happening, and here's this thing that's actually happening, uh, and at least I have some vocabulary, even it's foreign vocabulary, to attach to it. But I think part of our development, because I don't disagree with you, I think we are adept at navigating cognitive dissonance by either ignoring that it exists and like doing squats outside of a gym to demand it opens during a pandemic or um, navigating just like, fuck it. Can't think about it right now. Moving it to the side. Uh, But I think part of the way that we are adept at navigating that is that we just don't assign words to navigate. Well, I think I don't put handles on the concepts so you can't carry the concepts. I think the difference there is I think the words or the concepts we've developed to navigate that, which are robust, are the self. Um, we have put uh, self-improvement, uh, sur- survivability of the self, uh, and and what the self deserves or wants or needs. We have per- put I at the center of everything. And so we do, th- that's it. That's the pivot point, right? Uh, I-, I can rationalize um, why I need food stamps, but welfare is bad because <laughs> I need the food stamps. Um, and so that, that to me is, it, that's the, oh, so, that's the acrobatics. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. I get what you're saying. Now. So like we've become, uh, really adept at treating symptoms and ignoring causes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, 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 yeah. and if everything Which seems very American healthcare of us, <laughs> if everything rotates around me and I don't have to pivot around everything, it's really easy to justify all things because I, I I'm, I'm still in the center of this. Yeah. Um, and this is, of course, you know, part of our um, self-driven culture. I mean, there are a lot of things that we, we could splinter here and, and I won't. Mm-hmm. But um, our our uh, singular focus on the conservative American myth of it is I, I is me, I will pick myself up and I will prosper mm-hmm. um, makes it really possible to justify and, and, and write off pretty much anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Protestant work ethic, the Puritan influences of our culture, uh, the just world fallacy, a city on the hill, uh, those all, those all come into it. And it kind of comes to that truism. You, you hear so many Americans say, well, oh, uh, well, I'm, I'm fiscally conservative, but socially liberal, which means I think the problems are bad, but the causes are very good. 
you know, like, right. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Here's the other thing though. It was like, I think it used to be easier to do this. I think it was still bullshit. Sure. But I think it used to be easier to do this. Well, we I had the illusion the- of consensus, like up until uh I mean you can argue about when, but like there was a consi- there was a public consensus about way the way things should be and basically decorum and decorum is broken down. Um and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, so that's like, the other thing. And here's yeah. the thing, I wasn't like justifying it. It wasn't like nineteen ninety-eight, I was saying the US government is good and true and always to be trusted and uh, America is the, you know, you can be anything you want to be. Like, I, I, I haven't been doing that for decades, but like, the thing is, is like, when you explained it to people outside the system, they could at least see the facade of it. Like, perhaps if they were very plugged in and very into the news and knew everything about it, they could see that it was a facade, but they could at least see why the facade was convincing. Mm-hmm. The thing is, I can't get people to understand why anyone bought into it ever now. <laughs> and they're not wrong to assess that. Like, cause, cause it's so decayed that it's like, I just feel like an utter crazy person. Like, That's right. yeah. well, that building's not on fire. And like, it's clearly on fire and there's firefighters there and smoke pouring in the air. And they're like, well, why isn't it on fire? Well, that's the not on fire building. That's mm-hmm. the thing. We've always called it the not on fire building. So it's not on fire. Right. Like, <laughs> Well, and to your point, the, the the not workingness of all of it, you know, start, starts to starts to kind of unravel the rest of it. And so, um, you know, th- there was a period of time to Ross's point about consensus where we could say, well, but there's some functional reason to do all this. I mean, look at our economy and look at our global position and look at um, our education levels, you know, or what the fuck ever. Look at our crime rates going down and all this bullshit. And and now. The, all the functional stuff is also pretty gone. Uh, and, and so the, the, the ends justify the means has gone away. And, and now there's nothing left because now what you're doing is you're having to explain the Rube Goldberg device and it didn't even crack the fucking egg in the first place. And it's like, well, if you were going to crack the egg, why the fuck did you take the egg out? Like, well, I mean, welcome to America, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't fucking tell you. But the egg's out, so do something with it. Um, and, and, and we've just, I mean, that's it, right? I mean, it's the fucking uh, Jeff Daniels at the beginning. Is that it? Jeff Daniels at the beginning of Newsroom, right? Like where all of us uh, are supposed to have this like cultural moment where we're just like, oh my God, pull the veil back, guys. And it's like, well, don't, I mean, we don't need to be so sappy about it, but yeah. And once the veil's But, back, but the Newsroom makes it more complex because like I'll have people like, you guys know what's going on. Did you see the Newsroom? I'm like, oh yeah, everyone knows that. Right. And like, why don't you do anything about it? It's like, well, I don't, I can't. Right. And I don't want to die. <laughs> like that's, yeah, that's right. That's all. We, that's all I got. Like, right. Everyone knows it's that way. But um, Every, everyone. Knows, but that's. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, if everybody in the Emerald City thought there wasn't a wizard, you know what I mean? Like, why the fuck would he stand back there and make him look sound like a big motherfucker? I mean, it's just there. There's enough left of the fog of um, disagreement around what this all actually is that I think we're going to have to continue to fight these battles and both navigate. Here's what's happening behind the fog, and here, here is why the fog is still there, and we can't not be foggy because people and, yeah, and the the closest I've got to is that everyone knows it's a lie, except for the people who don't, mm-hmm. and they're dangerous, um, and the people who are in power who know it's a lie, don't do anything because they don't want it to be different because the lie is what they're saying. They're winning the lie. 
but they have different intentions. Like if, right. if you look at it from the goal of let's make as much money as possible, right. everything in America makes sense. It's a unique materialist mm-hmm. system that has a total, complete, inescapable logic, but they have to say uh, they have to say the lie to get the people who are stupid enough to believe it to enforce the lie for them amongst the people who have no power. Right. And I just sound like a fucking crazy conspiracy theorist when I say that, but it's not mm-hmm. like I think the Illuminati are doing it. I think it's mm-hmm. just the the fucking cultural momentum. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing. At this point, it's not it's not coming up with some uh, disparate reading of a thing for a political agenda. It's just like, well, it's, I mean. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to get you to think that this is all some malicious scam. I'm just. I'm just trying to explain to you the malicious scam where it exists and where it doesn't. I mean, yeah, it's slightly different agenda there, um, but it's tricky. And um, it, you know, it's uh, it's probably even tricky. I think it's getting trickier by the day as we continue to trip over our own feet on COVID. And, and will, I, I do think see, you know, increasing numbers uh, and I don't know that that means stricter lockdowns, or I don't know if that means at some point we just accept that this is it. Um, but, but once the, once the ends don't work anymore and you've still got to act like the means are good. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fucking nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, well, we've arrived on nothing. So that's right. a, that's a good way to end the episode of the mix six. That feels, that feels on brand. Um, <laughs> If you've never listened to us before, who boy, did you really step in one for this, your first Mix 6 episode? <laughs> uh, hey, if you like this and want to listen to a bunch of others, we have a fuck ton of public content available to you on your podcast streaming devices. Don't forget to check us out and rate and review us if you like it. And if you want to find more of the Mix 6, go to patreon.com, look for the Mix 6 podcast, and you can sign up to be patrons of the show where we have a bunch of additional content, shorter episodes, longer episodes, so on and so forth. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter. At the Mix Six, you can also find us on Facebook.com. We have a page and a group, and there are videos of us doing things on YouTube. That's Y-O-U-T-U-B-E.com. Don't forget, if you need anything right now, we've got fifteen dollars with your name on it. Please feel free to please please feel free to reach out if you are a patron of the Mix Six at any point in your life, and let us know that you need fifteen dollars. We won't ask questions why, and we'll send it to you via Venmo or the Cash App or PayPal if we can figure out how to make PayPal work because it's still stuck in nineteen ninety eight but we will make this work for you. Just send us a DM on the Discord, send us a DM on Twitter, send us a message on Facebook, or you can reach out to us directly through patreon.com. This has been the Mix 6 Podcast. I'm Spencer. I am the bees that force you to drink. We'll talk to you next time. (laughs) You're watching the Weather Channel, your most accurate and dependable source of weather information 24 hours a day. Good evening, you're watching the Weather Channel here on a Friday evening. Keep watchful as Jeanette and Joe, and as we look out there, Jeanette, look for